All right, well, let me tell you what I want to do. Um, I want to do four mini things tonight. The first thing is I want to talk about the heart. Um, the book talks a bit about the heart, so I want to do a brief uh, biblical survey of the heart. Next, I want to talk about, the, uh, about moralism. And this is something that's come up in the sermons. It's come up in youth. It's come up in my home group, just moralism versus the gospel. And I think how that impacts, how that can impact child training. So we'll talk about moralism. Um, I want to talk about memorizing scripture um, and the relevance I think that has for child training. I think it's huge. I think it's, I think it's central to discipleship, but I think it's also huge in child training. And then finally, I'll talk a little bit about the reaping and sowing chapter. I thought that was especially helpful in this week's study. Um, so let's dive into the biblical theology of the heart. Um, so we start off with, um, you know, the expression, I love you with all my heart. We mean by that really intensely emotionally, typically. Um, and I think we have to keep in mind that by heart, we usually mean emotional investment. Um, and that's probably, there's a lot of reasons behind that. But the biblical heart is much broader than emotions. Um, So the biblical heart is a couple things. Number one, it's where you think. Uh, So the heart is where you think. It's not just where you feel, it's where you think. Those things are unified. Emotions and thinking are unified. It's the center of um, decision and will. And uh, this is a little abstract, but it's the place uh, of our fundamental orientation. It's in our hearts where we fundamentally orient ourselves in the world. Uh, what is our fundamental um, orientation? Where are our affections aimed? Where are our decisions aimed? Where is our will aimed? That's all the heart. So it is biblically uh, the most important organ, if I could put it that way. Its purposes are the, the center of human life. And I'll get into how we see that in the temple in the second section. Um, so just, to, again, a couple of stops, because this is not meant to be a thorough study, but a couple of stops in the Old Testament Remember the Shema that we've talked about several times, Deuteronomy 6. These words shall be on your heart, right? Not just emotionally attached to them, but you should think about them. And you should center yourself on them. You should orient yourself on them. So Moses told Israel that the words of God needed to be on their heart. And then by the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is saying, but you know what, guys? You need your hearts circumcised. All right, there's a problem with the heart, and God needs to do something about that. We have physical circumcision, Moses said, but there needs to be a deeper kind of circumcision on your hearts. And he has that after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness with them. Um, we move forward to Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs, says, uh, Proverbs says, guard your heart above all else, for out of it are all the issues of life. All right? And this is Proverbs' way of saying, you want to know where all of the things that happen in your life ultimately come from, trace it back to your heart. Guard that above all else, all right? And a a paraphrase translation would be something like, of all the things you pay attention to and guard and are careful about, you should be most careful about the heart. Um, People are careful about what they eat. People are careful about uh, what they see. Um, Proverbs says we should watch the heart above all else. And then repeatedly in the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and other prophets, there's the promise that in the new covenant that God is about to bring about or is going to bring about, he will give his people a new heart. He will replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. He will, um, he will circumcise their hearts. So um, this is all um, the trajectory of the Old Testament. And we can kind of see it as the, 
as it unfolds with Israel, what's at issue with their heart, there's this promise that something needs to happen in your heart. It's the most important thing about you, and God is going to do something about that. Uh, in the New Testament, then, there's a couple of places where we see um, the fulfillment of this. One would be in Romans 2.28, uh, or in the latter part of Romans, at any rate, where uh, Paul says, look, guys, circumcision was never about physical circumcision only. It was pointing to circumcision of the heart. And that circumcision of the heart is what God does by his spirit. And when he does that, when he circumcises the human heart by his Holy Spirit, that heart suddenly wants more than anything to please God, not people. All right, pleasing God, not people. Hopefully that makes you think of the Sermon on the Mount, right? In which Jesus repeatedly says, don't do your righteous deeds to be seen by men, but do them for your Father who is in secret, right? Again, this is all the work that God wants to do in the heart. So God's been aiming at the heart through all of human history, a transformation of that organ, and that is all brought about in the New Testament. Uh, Let me read, and this is all through Matthew, but let me read one place that I think this is um, exhibited well in Matthew, and this is in Matthew 12, 33. Either make a tree good and its fruit good, or make a tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. And I love that terminology, make a tree good, because it speaks to God can make a tree, this tree one way or another. We can't, right? We can't turn a, a fig tree into a thorn tree or vice versa, but God can. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. There it is again, right? The things that come out of your mouth aren't your physical hunger, aren't your circumstances, aren't your relationships around you. They're ultimately about what goes on in the heart, what you treasure in the heart. Verse 35, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. It's an an interesting image. Our heart is a treasury. Uh, And we bring out with our words what we treasure in our heart. It's just the natural outcome of what we treasure in our heart. And remember Jesus' words about where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by our words we will be justified, and by our words we will be condemned. Again, the words reveal what's going on in the heart. And then finally, um, Jesus says, or not finally, but in addition... Uh, Jesus also says in Matthew, the great passage about, let me tell you, it's not what you put into your life that defiles you. It's what comes out of your heart that defiles you. All right. Um, So this is the, again, a, a whirlwind survey, but this is the fundamental thing God is interested in. He's not interested in behavior alone. He's interested in changing what kind of tree we are. Uh, He's interested in turning us into a different kind of tree. Now apply that to our kids. It's the exact same concern that God has for our kids. He does not want to merely control their behavior. We should not want to merely control their behavior. We should want to change their hearts. And when we think about that, we should immediately realize that we can't change their hearts. Right? Moses couldn't change Israel's heart. Uh, he understood that it had to be a work of God. And that should take us to the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. One of the best attributes of parenthood is poverty of spirit. 
is a recognition of the limits of what I can do about my child's heart. Now, that doesn't mean there's no hope. It just means we recognize that there's no technique that we will ever learn that will get to their hearts. All right, we have to cooperate with God as he is trying to get to their hearts. Um, so that's the first section. Um, any, any thoughts on that? And again, I'm going to come back to some of these themes um, here in a minute when I talk about memorization of Scripture. But this is just underlining the point that Tripp makes in the, in the, in the chapter that um, we don't want to be behaviorists. All right? We don't want to be behaviorists, modifying behavior. We want to be uh, parents who are shepherding our children's hearts. And that's a very different work. Uh, you can, through a stick or a carrot, get certain kinds of behavior. You, you can. But you can't get to the heart. Uh, the heart is something you have to appeal to. And this, by the way, just a sideline comment. Sometimes in child training, the child training world, you hear people talking about breaking a child's will. I'm pretty sure that's not a great idea. Or when, would you want to break your child's mind? I don't think we want to break those things. I think there's examples of God humbling the heart, right? Uh, in Hebrews, it talks about, or in, in Deuteronomy, it talks about, I want you to remember the way I led you all these years and allowed all these things to happen to you to humble your hearts to see whether you would do my will or not. The point of some difficulties or consequences that God brought is for them to see what was in their heart. Then was the opportunity for them to say, oh, my goodness, this is what's in my heart. God, would you help? Would you do something about this? Does that make sense? Um, so at any rate, just on that theme of the heart and on the difference between aiming at behavioral change versus aiming at the heart. Let's get a couple comments and questions before I move to the next section. If we get through all the material like this, we'll be done in 30 minutes. I mean, everybody realizes we just covered a lot of ground, so. Does that uh, principle... No. I mean, that gets back to, I think, a question you asked before. Sometimes we, we are just aiming at compliance with commands. Um, but pretty quickly, and again, I think it maps onto about the time they can reason when they have language that we're beginning to explain to them the, the questions of the heart and obedience from the heart and embracing it, not just because they get a reward or because they get a punishment, but because... Uh, they, they can say yes on the inside to what you're asking. So I do think it's an arc or a trajectory. So yeah. When they, when they start having language is when they can start analyzing their own hearts. So I wouldn't say they can analyze their hearts. That's the other thing. So, so oh, that's a big thing I, didn't, I left out. All right. If you think about it, what are the big scriptures in the Bible on the heart, another one is the heart is deceitful above all else who can know it. The point is you can't psychoanalyze yourself. You can't, you can't accurately analyze your motives, right? Uh, we can easily fool ourselves. This is why we need so much help from God to reveal our hearts. And scripture in many places calls him the heart knower. So I think what we're doing is helping them. I think when they have language, they can begin to see when they're nasty to their sibling that they have a bad heart. 
and that they need to ask Jesus to help them with their heart. And so my point is simply, not that they can know their heart, but if something bad comes out, very often it's their heart, and they need Jesus to help them in their heart, is, is maybe a better way of saying what I was saying. Yeah, so I, I think helping them see, with scriptures like this, that bad behavior is not just... Because we all do this, right? We all reason after the fact. Everybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, we see it with Alzheimer's patients. How'd you break your leg? Oh, I was roller skating with an elderly patient. Okay, that, have you ever seen stuff like that with elder dementia patients? They, how'd you break your leg or how'd you hurt yourself? They'll give some ridiculous reason. We do that all the time, right? Have you ever noticed yourself do that? You do something, there's something, and you give reasons why you did it. And we're really good at using reason to justify why we did things, right? Um, what was my point about that? I lost my point. Oh, well. It's true, but I, <laughs> it's making without that's actually Oh, the heart. yeah. So I mean, we can see it when they do it. It's we're trying to help them see. You know what's going on here is the ugliness in your heart, and Jesus came to help you with that. Um, yeah. What else? Yeah. Um, Could they look similar, but you have different because of the way you dialogue with the child about it? Yeah, I, so this is where I think it looks different with absolutely every kid. Like we were having a conversation tonight with the teenagers, the, the remaining teenagers in the house about their bickering and uh, where does this come from? And uh, in that conversation, I mean, we talked about several things, but one of the questions was, well, can you say, Jeremiah and Sadie, that you proactively think about how can I bless Sadie? How can I contribute to this relationship rather than... We were specifically talking about when Jesus says, turn the other cheek. I don't want to go too far off on this. Turn the other cheek, I think, is not about self-defense, but it's about insult and retaliation. Everybody know what I mean? I don't think Jesus is with that teaching saying you you can't defend yourself if there's harm. I think he's saying if somebody insults you, don't retaliate. Absorb it. Right? And so we had a discussion around that. And I think where where it always has to go is, and I'll, I'll get to this in the moralism thing. Maybe I'll get to it more in the moralism thing, is... It's not that Jesus came and gave new rules and we need to follow those new rules. It's that he came and gives his personal presence as help and his Holy Spirit as help and then practices that will break bad patterns. So I think it's, maybe this is the way of putting it, we've always got to bring it back to the gospel and whether they'll lay claim of the promises of the gospel to live them out practically in X, Y, or Z. Um, but ask me that again after we do the moralism thing. Yeah. All right. Any other thought before we move to the, the moralism thing? Question, thought, comment? Okay. So let's talk about moralism. Uh, this has come up in so many different ways, and I, and I think it's an important distinction we need to understand. And here's, here's what I mean in, in a nutshell. Sometimes I think when we read, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, we think that Jesus came to bring new, more intense rules. 
All right, that's sort of what it looks like, right? You've heard of old, it was said, don't kill, I, or don't murder. I say, don't even be angry. Oh, wow, Jesus is piling it up, right? We, now we, not kill, I can do that, but not be angry. Whew. All right, um, so again, I think we think he came to bring new rules. Um, moralism would reduce Jesus' teaching to a set of rules, to a new set of rules, a moral code. Um, a set of principles for good living. And this, by the way, again, my mind goes here, but um, certain people like Jordan Peterson, and I know Jordan Peterson may or may not be on a trajectory towards Christian faith, but what he has to offer sometimes, it's good, it's wise, but sometimes it's moralism. It's here's these principles, follow them, without the resources that the gospel offers, the personal presence of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that makes all the difference, right? There's a huge difference. So it's not that there's not some wisdom there. It's that it doesn't come with the gracious help that God gives in the gospel. And when we turn Christianity into moralism, um, it's a focus on human effort alone. And it's not that the gospel doesn't call forth human effort, but not, definitely not alone. And moralism can lead, and you can tell if you're leaning towards moralism, if you find yourself legalistic, self-righteous, um, judgmental towards others, right? When you notice those patterns in yourself or in a, in a community, that's probably a good sign that there's moralism there, right? Here's a system I'm learning to master. I'm doing better than so-and-so. If you have that attitude then I think what you do with your kids is moralistic. You have a set of rules. You want them to follow them, kerchow if they don't follow them, or bribery to get them to follow them, instead of something altogether different, which is the gospel. And again, to me, what's different about the gospel is that, well, there's several things. One, it offers us a gentle and lowly teacher who is humble of heart, right? Jesus doesn't come with these intense rules and say, now go do them or else. He comes with these unpackings of the Old Testament and says, and if you want to learn this, I'm here to help you do it. I'm the master fulfiller of them. Take my yoke on you, uh, and it's easy. I will help you. All right? It's hard to try to take Jesus' yoke and not do his teachings. That's hard. But to take his yoke and to learn from him, who is humble of heart... Um, you know, again, I, I always compare it to you're a musician. You have the greatest musical teacher in the whole world. They're super smart and they're super gracious and they know how to teach like crazy, right? That's the invitation. Or, again, take it to any other sort of area of, of expertise. So he gives himself as a gracious, helpful teacher. He gives the Holy Spirit, which does that heart work, Right? The Holy Spirit is working inside of us um, to show us where our heart is off, to give us the opportunity to say, hey, yeah, would you crucify this? Would you kill this thing in my heart so that I have a different heart? Um, so, you know, for example, the youth are memorizing the Ten Commandments. And we talked about this last week, this issue of moralism, because I, I don't want them to think. The Ten Commandments, I think all Christians should know and study. 
but not because we follow them in a strictly moralistic way, but because it's Jesus who's leading them in the fulfillment of those things, right? And if we don't understand them, we don't know what he's leading us to fulfill, right? It's, it's kind of like, again, you have somebody teaching you a sports skill, but you don't know what sport you're playing, right? You need to know what sport you're playing, and that's what knowing those commandments does. Um, but again, the specific way that I think that this can come up in child training is when we are just focused on behavior. And, you know, Cassie, back to your question, how does this practically look? I think it takes more time is what it looks like. It takes more time in conversation and prayer um, for our kids and with our kids. And quite frankly, we need this because when we're living out of the gospel and not moralism, we have the resources to help our kids. Um, does that make sense? Again, it's this, this thing that we will hit on forever being parents that we... It's not just that we have to model what we're calling them to, but we need it desperately ourselves. We all need our hearts constantly refreshed with the gospel, um, finding his help to do what he wants us to do. So let's talk moralism for a few minutes. Does that make sense? Can, everybody, can anybody relate to seeing Jesus' teachings as moralistic versus finding help from him and doing them? Get a couple comments there. I can say it all over again. Well, like the, huh? Uh, the storyline, or I guess the, the warning on when you might be <clears throat> towards moralism, right? You're legalistic, you're focused on your behavior compared to That makes sense. What would be a warning sign when you're pushing your kids too much towards behavior aligned with kind of what Jeff said earlier versus shepherding or you know, training their parts? Because behavior is kind of a manifestation of yeah. I think our levels of frustration are probably a good measure of that. Our, our levels of frustration with those issues. Um, I, I, I think probably we're moralistic. It's a sign that we're moralistic if it's common that we realize we need to apologize or we've lost our cool or, or whatever. Does that make, I mean, I'm just speaking autobiographically. I think if... I am coming out of the flesh. I'm angry. I'm, you know, whatever. Uh, I'm overly harsh. And I fully, we'll talk about that in a minute. I fully believe in proper consequences, sometimes serious consequences. But if I'm overly harsh or I'm not at peace myself, I think for me that's a good sign that I'm probably operating out of a moralistic frame. Um, I don't know. Anybody else? Did everybody hear that question? Signs that you're relating to your kids in a behavioristic way or a moralistic way versus a gospel way. I'm sure some people in here can. I feel like when I'm worried about what other people are thinking, um, then I'm realizing I'm operating out of more of a behavioristic. Yeah. Um, how I want my kids to appear yeah. to others. Yeah. Can everybody, can everybody hear that? Yeah. So maybe just say more broadly, anxiety, right? If I'm bringing anxiety to my parenting. And then, yeah, if I am, yeah, I mean, how many people can raise your hand and say, oh, yeah, ouch, 
that you've been intense with your kids because of social pressure. And it may not even be the society you're around. It may be your fault, but still, it's social pressure. Yeah, that's a great example. What else? That's a, and that's a tough one, too, right? Because in some ways, reputation is a piece of information, right? He, I mean, he talks about that in one of the chapters. But uh, again, all right, let me, let me bring out the Sermon on the Mount. The way you judge is how you will be judged, right? Uh, and this applies to our kids. Um, if we can think about the way we would hope our obvious failings would be dealt with by God, that is a great indicator of how we ought to relate to our kids in helping them with their obvious character flaws. Um, we would want to be helped. We would want to be held accountable, but we would want to be helped. You know, does that make sense? I, I think what Jesus is saying there, or one of the keys to what he's saying in the Sermon on the Mount about judgment, is it's the manner. It's the manner of judgment. Of course, there's a certain kind of judgment that's prohibited, but the way in which you relate to um, the failings of another person is going to be the way in which God relates to your own failings. Um, yeah. What else? So, sorry. I think it could be easy with, especially with older kids, teens, to just want them to be moral and stay out of trouble than to be really concerned about them having a heart for God. We'd like them to have a heart for God, but we more want them to stay out of trouble. Right. Yeah, staying out of trouble is a much lower bar or maybe a le- much less costly goal. It requires less investment than uh, shepherding their heart. And yeah, I mean, I, again, I think it takes time and conversation and prayer. And I would even say we're saying, I mean, honestly, the other thing, or the other thing we're saying is that this is the happiest way to live. This is the most flourishing way to live. Now, obviously, age appropriate, but right. I mean, what we're saying is not just these are wonderful principles. We're saying this is the life of God, and He's invited us into it. Right? It's the it's the most blessed way to live. Um, and I think Tripp makes that point. I can't remember what chapter it's in, but God appeals to our desire for a reward, right? Uh, uh, yeah, doesn't, I think he says it somewhere in these chapters. I've read so much this week, maybe not. But anyway, um, I think we can appeal to that, right? That it's not just, 
Yeah, I, I think we, it's important to examine if we threaten, if we promise rewards, or if we want them to be supremely happy. And we understand what that happiness is. Walking with God, knowing God, living the kind of life he invites us into. Yeah. Yeah, that's where my head went when it came to They don't even, because I've seen all this as a lesson, like a two-year-old or a three-year-old. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That, that's a good segue into section three. Uh, and this is a, kind of a turning a corner or almost a change of subjects, but it's not really. It still has to do with the heart. And what I want to talk about here is um, memorizing scripture. I mean, ultimately, the end result of what I want to say here is we ought to be memorizing scripture as the people of God. I want to try to make that case and argue what it has to do with the heart. Um, and to do it, there's a lot of ways you can do this. There's Psalm 1, uh, right? Psalm 1 is basically instructions on what to do with the rest of the Psalms. Um, Joshua, let these words be, you know, in your mouth and on your lips, uh, in your heart and on your lips. Uh, there's, there's multiple references to memorizing God's word in the Old Testament. I want to do it a little differently tonight, and that is by looking at the temple. So... We didn't have time in Exodus to do this, but the temple is symbolizing a lot of things. It's symbolizing the cosmos, um, but it's also symbolizing the person. All right, the, the temple symbolizes the person. And you can see this in a lot of ways. The language of the temple uh, has biological language. Like it talks about ribs and the features of the human body. Um, the the the, the materials that cover the outside are described like clothes. Uh, so I think that the temple gives us a symbolism of the human person. And we, we see this in the New Testament. Paul says your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Your individual bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. So how does this work? Well, just a few indicators. It has clothes. Um, it has eyes. Remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, your eyes are the lamp of the body. Right, And what you evaluate, what you see is valuable, what you treasure is going to affect your whole body. And ultimately, the temple has a heart. It's the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, which is the center of the center, so it has, it, again, it's the analog of the heart. What's in it? Who remembers? Three things. What's in the ark? So there's... The staff of Aaron that budded, indicating his election to the priesthood, his family. There's manna, and there's the law. All right? So everybody see that? The Holy of Holies, and the Ark in particular, is a symbol of the human heart. And in the center of that symbol of the human heart is God's law, really in two forms, the manna. And in the actual scroll itself. <clears throat> All right. Um, Deuteronomy eleven eighteen says this: there, that "You shall therefore lay these words of mine in your heart and in your soul." So stop and back up to what we said about the heart. 
If the heart is not the emotions alone, but it's your orientation, if it's your thoughts, what does that mean? If you lay them on your heart, you're going to be thinking about them. You're going to be focused on them. They're going to be, in some ways, your fundamental orientation. You shall lay these words of mine in your, in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So there's this uh, language of binding them to the heart, right? And again, I think that uh, relates to the temple. Um, so consider what that means. Consider what it means. So, for example, just the Ten Commandments. So G- God himself spoke the Ten Commandments. And if you memorize the Ten Commandments, you have the very words of God that he spoke in your center. How can that not have an impact on your life? How can that not change you? So I would say that we have in our hearts tablets. And there will be something on those tablets. And it's up to us to determine what will be on those tablets. We have that in our power to determine what will be on the tablets of our hearts. Um, who was the philosopher that said we have a tabula rasa? Was that? No, never mind. Um, so the point is the tablet of your heart will be written on. And if you don't decide what will be written on it, all kinds of things will be written on it. And again, relate this to Jesus' teaching about what defiles. What is written on your heart will come out, and defiling things will be written on your heart if it's not God's word. So here's my argument. If Paul's teaching is true, which I think it is, that we are temples— And our hearts are tablets, and Paul again says this as well in the New Testament, right? He says that our hearts are tablets. Then memorization of God's word is foundational to the guarding of the heart. And I was reading today about um, Augustine's program for uh, discipleship. There were apparently six hours of memorized material that he required disciples to have memorized before they got baptized. Now, that may be a little high. <laughs> there was another uh, catechetical material from the same time. It was three hours. of mem- It would take you three hours to recite the material that they wanted you to memorize before you came to baptism. I'm not suggesting we should get back exactly to that standard, but memorization was clearly central to them. Memorization, internalization. Um, and again, it's particular relation to the heart. <clears throat> So it's binding God's word on your heart. Um, And again, when you consider that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, it's kind of like inviting a wild animal into your heart. It's inviting something that you can't necessarily control into your heart, which is part of the point. Um, So I've said this many times, and I would say about twice a year, Kelly will corroborate this. About twice a year, I'm reminded of how formative memorizing scripture has been for me in my life, how probably I could trace some of the most important growth in my life to times when I've memorized and digested passages of scripture. Um, And about twice a year, I'm reminded of the need to do that. And so I do things like tell the youth they have to memorize (laughs) the Ten Commandments, so I'm doing it with them. 
But my point here is if you've got a kid in youth, ding, 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 like prime opportunity for you to jump on board with them um, and, and dig into that yourself. Um, so this is just another thing that's come up repeatedly um, for me, and I think, it's, I think it's really central and it has to do with the heart. And the other thing I would say is the more material we give God by memorizing it, the more his Holy Spirit has to work with uh, in our day-to-day lives, right? Um, so thoughts on memorization, meditation on Scripture. This ultimately may be something that you can only really benefit from, not if somebody makes you do it in your home group, but if you decide you're going to do it. Which is not to say you shouldn't, you know, encourage people to do it, but I think you only benefit from it if you determine, I'm, I'm going to do this. So, thoughts on memorizing scripture. Oh, and by the way, the point with kids is they can memorize better than we can. So don't, how many of y'all wish you could go back? Like, I wish I could go back and be raised in a bilingual home so I had multiple languages without even thinking about it. I wish, you know, my parents had had me memorize all kinds of stuff because it would still be with me. um, And it would have been a lot easier than memorizing it now. Well, especially if you've got little kids, don't lose the opportunity. And if you don't have kids yet, start the habit now so you're doing it with them. And the easiest memorization I ever did was when I was memorizing psalms with my little kids. When we would pantomime the lines and act them out. I mean, so, uh, yeah. Thoughts on this before we turn a corner and do the one last section. I mean, it's so much fun, and uh, yeah, it's fun. Maggie, did, do you remember doing that much? Yeah. Okay. And I still remember a lot of the verses that everyone memorized. Did everybody hear that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do. I wish I could. I wish I could go back on so many ways and do things like this more. And, I, and again, I, if there's one big thing I would have changed, it would have been a lot of memorization of scripture. Especially when they were little. What else? Oh, this is sufficient. Oh, their brains are soaking in so much. And so 
you know, and maybe it's probably excuses, but I'm wondering if you have thoughts on on like this being something totally separate from a school curriculum. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, the first one, memorization versus meditation. To me, memorization is step one. And by memorization, I mean word for word, you got it. Like, without hesitation. I think it's only then that you can begin to chew on it. And again, those, those images, um, those biblical images for meditation are to mutter. Right uh, in Psalm one, the word, the word, um, blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the day, way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. It's the image of muttering. It's the image of chewing cud, which is what. Right. So to compare it to chewing cud, my understanding, I only know this, you know, but cows take a bite, swallow, comes back up. Chew on it some more. Swallow goes back down. Comes back up. Chew on it some more. I think that happens three times before it finally stays down. That's one of the biblical pictures for meditation. So, it, so in that image, memorizing is taking the bite and swallowing the first time. And meditation is. And for me, it's when you're going to sleep at night. You're just chewing on the verses. Uh, it's when you're driving alone and you have the music off and you're just chewing on the verses. So it's meditation is what you do with it once it is memorized. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I don't think we can do that enough. You know, when you walk down the street and you got someone going in your head and you, he's like a tree. Hey, there's a tree. And you, Think about trees planted by living water, and you think about—I mean, you know—it just it keeps going and going and going and unfolding. Um, so, yeah, I don't know anybody else thoughts on that because I do think it's an important distinction. There's memorizing it, and then there's meditating on it. Um, the, a command in the Old Testament that I hadn't really taken notice of until recently is that the king that it, that is promise to come in the Old Testament and the Torah is commanded to make a physical copy of the, the book of the law himself. Imagine what that would do so that he could study in it the rest of his life. So imagine you make a physical copy of the Bible that is your life copy of the Bible and what the physical act of writing and, and being in that yourself would do. That's a kind of meditation too. So it's, it's the lingering over. Um, that's at stake there. And then, um, I don't know about, like, in, in the curriculum, the curriculum versus at home. I think the fir- my first thought was mom and dad should be doing, it should be a way, they, a way they live. And then I think naturally out of that, you'll, as a family, do some things that you're not memorizing in school. Um, so I kind of think more both and. Um, it's a great, I mean, it's obviously a great thing to do in school, but I think, I, I just want to, I want to make sure we're not encouraging our kids to memorize and we don't have a lifestyle of doing the same, is I guess what I'm saying. And, you know, <clears throat> the other thing to say is we're behind the eight ball on this because obviously we have all the technological hindrances that keep us from memorizing, but 
we are so capable of it. I just read an article about um, a woman who has taught um, literature in prisons for years. And she says it's uncanny, these prisoners' attention, because they don't have technology that they can access. She says they'll sit for two and a half hours discussing Montaigne and not go to the bathroom and not yawn once. And some of these are lifers. So there's some, you know, the point is we can cultivate our attention, and I think we need to be a people who cultivate attention. Christians especially need to be a people who are cultivating attention again. Um, they, this could be a long tangent. So any, any other thoughts on memorization, meditation, before we hit the last section? Um, how many parents of youth in here? We got a good number, yeah. Okay. Um, last, let's talk about um, reaping and sowing. So, um, Tripp takes this from, and it's important to note, he takes this from the book of Galatians, which is a book about, I mean, all the New Testament's about grace, but in particular, the book of Galatians is a book about grace. And I think it's a temptation as Christians, when we talk about God's grace, to assume that God is mocked, right? That, you know, this is, salvation is a gift of grace, not works, and we let that override everything, and we don't understand that God doesn't do away with the principle that his world works this way. You sow, you reap what you sow, all right? And he's built this into his universe in so many ways. Um, We live in a universe where uh, consequences are attendant upon our choices, Right? He gave us pain receptors as a gift of information that tells us something is wrong so that we address it. And when we have physical pain, we're supposed to say, what is this pain telling me? <laughs> Need to find this out. Find out what this pain is telling me so I can change it. And by the way, our emotions are the same. Sometimes I think we have a stoic view of emotions, which is not a Christian view of emotions or a biblical view of emotions, that what we need to do with emotions that we don't like is repress them. I think what God gave us emotions for is to say, what is this emotion telling me? Is there something I need to know? Is there something this emotional pain is telling me that I need to work on? It makes us attend to roots, tend to the sources of what's going on. And we're supposed to teach our children that they reap what they sow. Yes, God is forgiving, but he doesn't take away the principle that you reap what you sow. Um, Again, back to a behavioristic approach. In a behavioristic approach, we use threats or rewards. Um, But attending to consequences is meant to make us attend to our hearts and what's coming out of our hearts. I referred to the scripture earlier. Let me, let me go ahead and read it because I think it's an important understanding. God is treating Israel as his firstborn son. And he says to Israel after their 40 years in Deuteronomy 8, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So the point was that God 
let all kinds of consequences flow from their choices and actions in the wilderness to show them what was in their heart. Uh, and again, I think the New Testament implication of that is so that they could say, God, help me with what is in my heart. So the point to summarize is that God gives consequences. He gives a, wor- a universe full of consequences to get to our hearts, not to threaten us into shaping up, but to uh, attend to our hearts. Um, And to say this another way, and I think Tripp says this, the gospel is the only hope for heart change in our children. Um, And, you know, maybe we don't have lots of opportunities to share the gospel with outsiders, but we have daily opportunities to share the gospel with our kids. Um, And to help them see how the gospel applies to their little hearts. Uh, I think his two kinds of consequences that he gives are helpful. There's natural consequences, right? Um, We're all aware of those. Eat too much candy, get sick. Um, But then there's consequences shaped by authority. And this is where we need wisdom and help. Where we bring consequences in our children's lives that are the result of their choices that help them um, that help them reap what they sow so they have the opportunity to see what's in their heart and change. And by the way, when we fail to consistently bring consequences, this is the challenge on this one, I think. When we fail to consistently bring consequences, we numb them to the thing that God gave them to help them open up their heart to him. Does that make sense? We're not being loving to them. We're being... We're, we're harming them. Does that make sense? So this is where the issue of consequences is important. If we don't, again, it's, we all know the stories about people that have the neurological issue where they can't feel and they often die young because they have some problem that they don't know about. If we don't bring consequences to our children for their choices that are appropriate, uh, we're numbing them uh, to the ways in which God wants to teach them. Uh, he points out that they should be logical and reasonable, right? And this is where mom and dad has to pray and discuss and compare notes with other parents. Child doesn't take care of their property, so they won't enjoy their property, right? If they don't take care of their own property, it's going to fall apart or it's going to be lost, and they shouldn't get it back, maybe, if they've make, made choices. Uh, if they don't get along with others, they'll be lonely, Right? Isn't that a natural consequence in life? If you, don't, if you don't know how to get along with people, you don't have friends. That's a natural consequence of that. And we are to wisely bring that in our children's lives. Um, Tripp points out that family chores are an excellent place to see the, the whole thing of sowing and reaping. Right? I, this is why I think children should all have responsibilities in the home that are regular and outlined and clear and expected and where they get to regularly face those consequences. I mean, think about what great employees it'll make them if they just learn that, right? Around the house, that they have these responsibilities. When they don't do them, they lose privileges. Their pay grade goes down if you want. Um, So I think we should help our kids think about how they sow in their relationships, right? Whether it's a little kid or an older kid. How do you sow in relationships? Are you unkind regularly? Well, what do you think you would sow from being unkind regularly? 
what kind of um, things do you think you would, re- excuse me, reap from that? Um, so again, I think the biggest thing to, to challenge us in this one is that we should not give in to the temptation to shield our children from consequences of their bad choices. All right, and again, this takes wisdom. Um, let me read this. This is an actual quote from the chapter. Uh, you stand as God's agent of loving standard bearing and caring instruction. You administer temporal and tactile <laughs> That's if you're looking for spanking, that's that. Um, Administer temporal and tactile reminders, consequences to instill the truth that God cannot be mocked. Um, Let me use one example. Um, Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land. That's, as Paul says, the first commandment in the ten, ten words that has a promise. And notice that it's hinged on God wants to invite them to long life in the land. And I think that's a symbol for the flourishing life that he wants us to have with him forever. You honor your father and mother. You honor those in authority that God has given you. And it brings good things. It brings blessing. Uh, We're inviting our children into that. So sometimes we're tempted to think, oh, well, you know, I'm not as uptight as other parents are about the way my kids talk to me or the way, you know, whether I allow them to hit me or, or speak a certain way to me. You're keeping them from blessing that God wants them to have if you don't attend to how they honor you or not, and, and bring the consequences of that. All right, I love the way he puts it. God's agent of loving standard bearing and caring instruction. Um, so I think, again, a concluding thought is just helping them see what they're sowing. Helping them see how their words, their actions... Um, sow in their own lives and what they can expect to reap if they continue sowing that way. All right. It's eight. So why don't we just take five minutes of discussion around this last point and um, questions, comments. Reaping, sowing. Feel like you have a. Who has an application? Why don't we have three people share? Just whether from what you read from the chapter, what I shared. Just oh man, I, I need to attend to that that principle in my child's life. How's that, is that helping? No. <laughs> so maybe a different consequence. Yeah. 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 All right. Who else? I can't, yeah, I can't underline, did everybody hear that? I can't underline that enough. There needs to be an agreement 
And, uh, and honestly, maybe the process of coming to agreement is where you get the best sort of consequence or the wisest consequences. Because it's true, dads typically are going to err on the side of harshness. Moms are going to typically, it's not always the case, but uh, what? What? <laughs> uh, you think it's the reverse? For me and mom? Yeah. That's why I said typically. Um, anyway, I, I, I do think that's huge. Um, and that's where all the, I mean, that's where huge tensions are, right? And child rearing, like, raise your hand if that in your marriage that's a huge source of tension is the discussions around what consequences are appropriate. Um, but I do think it's, that's where we've got to be. We've got to talk together. We've got to pray together. We've got to come up with, we've got to agree on those consequences. Yeah. Maggie, do you have any? I'm always like, you guys can be like, baloney. <laughs> All right. Two. Yes. Uh, so in, in the book, you talk about making consequences like related to like or even somewhat related. What if the like generally a lot of things can come back to just like blanket disobedience? Yeah. Um, I mean, again, I think with younger children, it's going to be more like that. Um, and. I will say when our kids were, again, when our kids were younger, it was often more spankings for clear disobedience. So, um, and that worked in large part for most of our kids. Uh, Spanking usually worked for those issues of disobedience. Um, But, and that's right, I would say corporal consequences are more common when they're little. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, yeah, that would be, so that principle is sort of etiquette, right? To teach etiquette, whatever, like not running or whatever it may be, it's giving, engracing them ahead of time, right? Giving them all the resources around it. Um, That to me is different than defiant disobedience. And I think it's important to distinguish that. Is this a skill thing versus is this a, you know, just standing up and saying no. Um, so I, I do think those are different. One is we haven't engraced them enough. We haven't trained them enough. The other is they're just saying no. And we have to know when, which is which. Yeah. All right, one last comment or thought on this. I thought this chapter, again, for me, uh, the reaping and sowing the temptation to shield your child from God-given consequences. That's the big danger there. And knowing, you know, if you're prone to give in to that temptation.
Yeah. And I think it also relates to the idea that sometimes you're going to have to teach your kids that, you know what, you've sowed this way for a long time. So you can't expect immediate, like if you've been nasty to your siblings for a long time in this way, you can't expect them to suddenly turn the corner because of one good choice, one good, you know, it, it's going to take a while. Yeah. 